Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah. And you are listening to a bonus episode of You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Micaiah and I are joined by friend of the pod, Michael Washburn, to discuss one of my favorite albums of the 90s, The Counting Crows, August, and Everything After. Micaiah, Uh you are not a fan of this album, but Michael Washburn and I love it. Yes. So let's start here before we get into what will surely be a long conversation with Michael Washburn trying to convince you to love this album. Why did you agree to do an episode about this album to begin with? Uh, Because I thought it'd be fun. I thought it'd be worth it. Um, Well, first of all, we put uh, Michael Washburn through a lot on our Van Morrison episode. So part of this is penance for me. But And I knew you love Counting Crows and this album in particular, because I think I'd seen on some drafts of what you would consider the greatest albums of all time. And we've also talked independently, like, okay, what are some albums that you love, but probably couldn't in good conscience like agree that it is a 100 greatest albums. And I thought it'd be fun to try to talk about those albums for like these bonus episodes. So having that in the back of my mind and having put Michael Washburn through so much when he mentioned that one of his favorite albums that he thinks is one of the best of the nineties and potentially all time was this album. I thought, well then that, that would help us out because we get to do kind of a fun bonus episode talking about an album that will not make our list simply because I will never see, you know, see this album as one of the greatest of all time. And that's part of our methodologies that you and I have to, you know, mutually Mm -hmm. agree. Right. So I thought, well, this would be kind of a, a fun way to approach an album. If two people really love it and I just can't, can't get there. Um, Yeah. So I listened to a, more Counting Crows preparing for this episode than ever before in my entire life. Um, and I will not go back. Uh, just, um, I got my fill. Um, I'm all good. I will say that I have listened to the entire Counting Crows discography in preparation for this episode. And I will go back many, many, many times. Um, they, they're just, they're just a band. Um, there's something about them that just, it, it works for me. It does it for me. And, and the reality is for both of us, we have a whole lot of overlap in our musical taste. And, and part of the reason that uh, this podcast works is that we have enough overlap in our musical taste that we can uh, agree on some things together. But the areas where for as much overlap as we have the parts of our Venn diagrams of musical taste, I am really surprised that that counting crows is not in that shared space. Um, but I also understand it. And in one of the things you and I have talked about, like 
you know, the counting crows are not in that shared space for you, but you know, Neil Young isn't for me. Joni Mitchell isn't for me. And so, you know, there's, if, if we're going to yeah, be, but the fair, major difference there is that like Neil and Joni are like icons. Yeah. And the greatest to ever do it. And counting crows are for a very specific group of people who caught wind of them in the nineties. You know, like uh, Joni and Neil are, are timeless acts and Counting Crows are very much a product of their time. From my perspective, at least. But yeah, I mean, that, that's. I So yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, but I think that's a really interesting question. Let's let's pose that question to Michael Washburn, because I don't believe that that's true. And I don't think he's going to agree to that either. Um, but I'm. I, yeah, I, I want us to have that conversation with him. That being said, let's not take any more time. It's a bonus episode after all. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and let you hear from our sponsor. Uh, of course, we want to thank Anchor for continuing to be our sponsor through our bonus episodes as well. And uh, we want to thank them for the money that they're paying us, which is uh, allowing us to you know, buy things like recording equipment and uh, albums. And uh, we will be back with our friend and our very first three-time guest, Michael Washburn. We are with friend of the pod, um, and our very first three-time guest, and um, as as he shared with us earlier, um, maybe a person that we have spoken to and spent more time talking with in the last 18 months than many family members of ours, uh, just because of the fact that we have had similar passions. Uh, Michael Washburn works for Humanities New York, and he is the author of the 33 and a Third series, on Tom Petty's Southern Accents. Uh, he was with us to talk about Tom Petty. He was with us and um, really suffered through our conversation on Van Morrison, where he, he really demonstrated um, his gifting as, as someone who helps people hear each other. So really demonstrating kind of, kind of his vocational prowess. And when we first spoke with him, we talked about what are some albums that may not ever make our list, but that he would argue for. And he and I share a deep love for the debut album of the Counting Crows, August and Everything After. And that's what we're, we're here to talk about tonight. Micaiah is not yet sold, but Michael and I are here to sell him on the brilliance of Adam Duritz of Counting Crows and of September 1993's Best album, August and everything after. Thank you guys so much for having me back. It's a, a treat and a thrill. And I almost didn't take you seriously when you said we were going to talk about Counting Crows. So this is just a delight. Mm -hmm. But it's also auspicious timing because I think tomorrow is the anniversary mm -hmm. of the release. And we're also obviously living in the everything after part of our second fall of, of the COVID era. So, I mean, the stars are aligning for this. Um, I'm super excited to dig in. And I'm thrilled that you had me here to talk about Dirt's and the Boys. It's a total coincidence, but I, that, that is a fun fact. Rob, I want to 
call you out right away by for rewriting history and calling what we did for Van Morrison a conversation and not a shouting match. Uh, and that, cause that's really why I agreed to do this. Cause I have really no interest in this album. Uh, but so this is kind of like a penance of sort, just having to put Michael through us just going head to head over moon dance and astral weeks. So I felt like I, I owed it to both of you to let you Gen Xers try to talk this millennial into oh. Counting Crows being uh, one of these great bands of the 90s and not, you know, like a, a one-hit wonder, which I think for people my age, it it's the they're either the one-hit wonder because of Mr. Jones or people maybe just a little bit younger than me, the people on the Shrek 2 soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, for which they were nominated for an Academy Award. So, you know, good, good for them. So she said, what's the problem? They've never had a hit as big in terms of Billboard charts as Mr. Jones, which peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1994. But it is an album, August and Everything After, that we're talking about. It is an album released in September of 1993, uh, really broke out in 1994. It produced four singles for the band. It ultimately ended up selling to date about 7.1 million copies. And so this is also a band that has released to date eight studio albums and a live compilation as well. And so we are talking about a band that you'd be really hard pressed to refer to them as a one hit wonder. I mean, that, that would be really diminishing of, of who this band is. Um, unfortunately, there, there are a lot of people who don't know anything about the Cannon Crows beyond Mr. Jones. And the, if you go back and even listen to or read some of the writing about this band and this album from 1993 and 1994, there was a whole lot of referring to the Cannon Crows as a band that just wore their influences on their sleeve. And so I think the, the shalala parts of Mr. Jones, I think immediately brought to mind a bunch of Van Morrison so maybe how appropriate that we have Michael Washburn back on to talk about that, but mm -hmm. also influences like the Grateful Dead and the band and Bob Dylan. And, and so there is an extent to which the early fans of this band, not surprisingly, were fans of the music that clearly influenced them. But there's also an incredible picture of artists today that cite this album in particular as a huge influence. You know, we just finished doing a bonus episode on emo music and Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional names August and everything after as kind of one of the most important albums for him. Uh, Nate Ruiz of the band Format and then of Fun 
ranks this album as one of the most important for himself. Jack Antonoff has cited this album as one that has uh, influenced him in a lot of ways, especially in songwriting. And Taylor Swift has even named this album as one that she is particularly fond of. And so there are millennials who are fans of this album and, and who have a relationship to it. But it is an album that does not receive the critical reception that we think of when we talk about a great album or a greatest album. It, this is this is an album that its critical reception was generally good, a solid album. Uh, it generally was, you know, four out of five stars, you know, kind of a B plus rating. Uh, but this was an album that never was seen by critics as a great album, just really a good album. And yet for the fans of this band and for this music, this is one of the great albums. And so it is not uncommon for fan reaction and critical reaction to be different. It is surprising to me how unanimous that difference is. The, the critical reception is really, here's a solid album, but it's not great. The fan reaction really seems to be, this is among the greatest albums. So, Michael, help me as we're talking to Micaiah about this. How do we explain or understand kind of that difference? How do we understand why this album that was that was not critically lauded as a great album of all time or as a, even of a greatest album of the 90s is so meaningful and so important to people like me and you who love the album? It's harder to talk about why I love it than why I think people hate it. Um, honestly, um, but they're connected. They're, they're totally connected. And I think it's about, at least for me in the first pass in responding to your question, Rob, would be that I think that there's something that's, um, entirely raw and disenthralled from defenses, that it's an entirely emotively sincere and engaging record that has no speaking specifically of, of Durrits right now because we because the band itself is different. I, there's some things I want to say about the band as it was then versus the band as it is now, and what that does for the record versus other records. But speaking of Durrits's performance in particular, and most of the critiques and most of the love ends up centering on him, mm -hmm. um, fairly probably. But I feel like there's just the the sort of like raw live wire, uh, entirely vulnerable, thin skinned persona of Duritz is the type of thing that if you're okay, sitting comfortably in emotions, that it's easy to accept that. And you can go down that road and uh, his bafflement, the bafflement of himself, of his subjectivity in these songs feels really um, compelling and comforting. If you yourself have had similar bafflements. Right. And I think that, and I think that that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Right. I think that if you look at them, this record came out like what in utero came out a week before or a week after it, Right. Um, and so there's the context, like even though they were on the same label and they have the same A&R guy, there's uh, the context with which it was released in the world has just it's going to live forever under the shadow of Nirvana. And then it had this cohort of like uh, Gin Blossoms and Big Head Todd, and these Django Rock guys, which um, I think it by far surpasses. Um, so that's like a very partial, like a half a rune response to why I love it and why I think people love it and why I think some people don't love it. And I'll see what you guys say, because there's some more I want to say about this, but I, I just want to just stop for a second because I feel like I've been talking for a long time. Well, I'll chime in was as far as why people don't like it. And I think it, it is just the Mr. Jones thing. It's the 
for REM, it's the shiny, happy people thing. It's just like it gets so overplayed and overshown on MTV that people just just cannot hear it anymore, cannot watch it anymore. It becomes a thing that you're like, oh, that's that's neat, that's interesting. I mean, of course, the difference is that's like REM's like eighth album, and this is their first album, so there are some key differences there. But you know, it just becomes a thing like, oh, that's interesting, that's catchy to a thing. It's just like this has to stop. I mean, like that the song stayed on the radio for years. You know, like it came out in '93, so I would have been three. But I have memories of hearing it as late as 95, 96. Like, I, I, I have memories of listening to this in the car, but it, they obviously couldn't have been from 1993 unless my memory is superior. You need uh, to be in a study someplace rather than talking to us. Yeah. And I, I have good memory, but I'm not, I'm not going to give myself that. But, I mean, to me, like, the fun of listening to Counting Crows, specifically Mr. Jones, is that, like, it is, it is just like that nostalgia thing for me of just being like, every, every time I hear it, I think of driving by Fort Walton Beach, Florida, Mariester, Florida, Destin, Florida, you know, like the beach communities on Highway like 98 where I grew up mm-hmm. and seeing all the community, the beach communities um, at like eye level from like the window and the passenger side of like my mom's car. But spin doctors do that for me. You know, like it, it, there's just like a there's just like a handful of just like wow, real nineties songs that just really get group like like two princes, uh even like even later nineties, like semi charm kind of life, they all get kind of get tied into this just like vague nineties just like nostalgia trap that like as a music listener I have like no interest in, but as a person with memories, I'm like, Oh yeah, that reminds me of you know, driving by the mall when I was really little or something, you know what I mean? Or just, or just being in the back of my mom or dad's car or something. Um, but other than that, like there's just not a lot of interest there for me with, with them. Musically. All right, let, me, let, let me, let me try to dislodge you from this like prison of nostalgia that, that you're in. Um, oh, how to start. Uh, I guess I was like, <laughs> I'll go all in. I mean, so I think part of the um, like the sort of irritation at the whiny white guy solipsism was partially because, which I think gets applied to Dirts a lot, mm-hmm. um, was a large, largely due to the fact that their first hit, Mr. Jones, their biggest hit, is about a guy on surface striving for fame, and then Dirts yeah. immediately started to complain about it. Afterwards, he didn't dig it; he felt suffocated. Mm-hmm. Now, I would make an argument i was like two, a couple arguments one is that's just bad luck right i'm sure they didn't pick that as the first song right in fact actually round here was the first single off the record i think um which i think is a superior song step out the front door like a ghost into a fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white in between the moon and you angels get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right I walk in the air between the rain through myself and back again where I don't know Maria says she's dying through the door I hear crying why I don't know Round here we always stand up straight 
Second, I think that, um, you know, All You Need Is Love, the Beatles song? Mm-hmm. Nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Mm-hmm. All you need is love. Wah, 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 wah. And I always read that trombone as irony. I think that song is cynical as hell. And I don't think that gets noticed enough. And I think the sha-la-las, which are, of course, Van Morrison on his sleeve, I think in many ways, that's him making fun of this entire enterprise of the rock star dreaming. So I think there's a level of sophistication and self-observation in that song that it's not given credit to. Third, I'll say that for a song that's so catchy and so poppy, it might come as a surprise, maybe not, that there's not a rhyme in it, right? There's hard rhymes where he'll say the same word, right? But there's actually not a rhyme. So basically he's written his text and just with the force of melody, he has created something that, yeah, you remember from when you were three or four, right? And that's not really just a testament to the course, which does get grading after a while. Finally, I'll say this. I think that if you put Round Here or even Mr. Jones on a Bob Dylan record and had him perform it, they would stand out as some of the greatest songs on the record. And where it wouldn't feel right in Dylan's mouth is the moments where he is more vulnerable and more emotive. Because whereas Duritz is speaking from a very strong subject position of like grief and woundedness, Dylan's always sort of like sneering through things mm-hmm. and observational. Right. And so I think in many ways that makes Duritz a more spectacular performer. And I think that the reason people would say, don't, I, I, I'm not really making the argument, the end point <laughs> is I'm not trying to make, but I'm trying to like be provocative here. But I think that the reason that people would say that Dylan is superior, even if he was singing Mr. Jones, is because the way he would perform it would be much less vulnerable. And that's much easier for people who listen to classic rock to deal with. See, no, I, I I like that you did that because I I've listened to August and Everything after a lot actually preparing for this, um, and I kept thinking to myself like, okay, would I like this if it were Michael Stipe singing it? Like, if this were Michael Stipe, would I be like, yeah, this is one of the best REM songs? 
But what I kept coming back to is like, no, but like Michael Sype would not do this. All right. But that, that, that's, that's what makes them counting crows. If anything, mm. it says more mm. about them. You know what I mean? Uh, that's not like a put down on counting crows. That's what separates them apart from Ariam, who they're clearly kind of writing the coattails of the success of automatic for the people. Mm. Like, listen, like when like Omaha comes in, you're like, Oh yeah, they're like the way that song starts is just like something you might hear starting up on, on automatic for the people on, out of, on more on out of time than on automatic for the people like uh, yeah, if, but, if, if the yeah. influence if there if there's an rem influence there it feels more at home and out of time than it does on automatic for the people sure i mean count them both i mean the both those rem albums are staples for like that coffee rock coffee house rock kind of you know 90s thing which this album is fits very well into um but yeah but yeah, so I, I have been thinking about like, is it is it just him? Is it just like the the white guy with dreads thing that that like turns me off? Um, but no, not really, because I mean, like I listen to it, it's just like I like round here. I was like, this is a great song, and then for about twenty seconds, it gets a touch two nineties. Mm, it does so you, the, don't like the, you don't like the production of it? Um, well, just the for like twenty for for round here, like twenty seconds, like when the electric guitar comes in. Um, but like REM are victims of this too, or guilty of this too. Uh, what's the first track on Out of Time? The one with KRS One on it. Oh, um, radio song. Yeah, that that one's just like, oh, half of the song is beautiful, half of the song is yeah, just I have a problem with that song. Real garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, no offense, REM, um, but it's not on any of their greatest hits. Um, but but there's uh, to the defensive kind of crows there's only like 20 seconds of that on there but it's just like oh man like i thought this album i was like this album this might they might be onto something and like that happens like uh that, so explain that, a little bit more um what happens what is it that happens there's a guitar that comes in and i don't know if it's the wah-wah guitar the wah-wah guitar comes in and um it's one of those things where there's a like for like the majority of songs like are they like ahead of their time are they like carving a new path here and then like that comes in like oh this is this is how they fit right into this like Mm -hmm. early 90s thing but it only happens for 20 seconds it's like it's really bizarre as i would refer to which i think is a testament to t-bone burnett's production right Mm -hmm. because they were sounding they themselves say they were sounding very different before he came in and took the reins one thing that i'll say about that and about one of the things i think is weakest about the album although it's intimately involved with some of the things I think are great about the album, but speaking of like people's position of critique about like the, the jingle rock coffee house guys with their mandolins is, you know, they had not been a band very long when they cut this record. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that shows, I think that August very much almost feels like Duritz with some studio musicians, although that's just because they hadn't played together that much. But if you listen to Recovering the Satellites, the next record, one, it's a little more, it sharpens its teeth a bit, but the band's more of a band. And then Rob earlier invoked that incredible 2010 Live at Town Hall performance of all of August and everything after. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's the perfection of those songs, mm-hmm. right? And I think that it's just, um, I think a lot of it, one, like, you're not like, at that point, you're like, I don't know how old he was, how old they were. They're, they're kids, right? But you're not going to like, be signed on Geffen with T-Bone Burnett producing and kind of push back a lot. Even, I mean, he changed the entire sound. And I think yeah. that it might've just been, it ended up feeling too mannered. And if you take that, even though I think it's, it, production sounds pretty well, but there's a little bit too mannered. And then the band not really having uh, cohered 
as a rock band yet. They hadn't toured, mm-hmm. right? It had been like two guys in a coffee house for a long time. Um, I think that that, to some extent, like that's the critique I accept easiest about the record. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't feel like a band record yet. It feels like a bunch of Adam, what I think are stellar Adam Durrett songs. Yeah. When we made this, uh, this album, we, we nearly killed each other. Uh, it was really hard to make. We were just a new band, and we'd only been together about, you know, a few months when we got signed, like three months, and maybe been together for like seven or eight months when we made, started the record. So we weren't, we weren't really very good at being a band yet. We had to learn how to do it in the studio. And some of these songs, you know, I wanted them to be really subtle. I wanted them to be about, you know, you know what this song is about. It's kind of about going crazy. But it had to be kind of, I don't know, it was just really difficult to record. We spent days and days doing it while I had a little mental breakdown and slid against the wall, up and down against the wall, over and over again. But uh, it was my favorite song off the record when we recorded it, because I think uh, it was so hard to do, and it turned out really cool. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't play it for a very long time, and we put it in a set early this summer, and we haven't been on the gala set yet, and it, it sure as hell ain't getting out of this one. So this is called Perfect Blue Buildings. Down the street from your hotel, babe. I stay at home with my disease. Well, ain't this position familiar, darling? All monkeys do what they see. So help me stay awake, cause I'm falling down. Virginia and La Loma Where I had friends who cared for me You got an attitude Of everything I ever wanted I got an attitude of need So help me stay awake I'm falling a sleeping perfect blue building Beside the green and sea I wanna give me a little oblivion, baby And try to keep myself away from me I'm still... Micaiah, not buying the critique. It just seems like you just don't like it. And I just no, want that's what it, that I mean, just yeah. don't like it. Yeah, I mean, that's just, that's, that's what it's always going to come down to is that like, it's just a matter of taste. It's just like, it's just not what I'm into. Like if my favorite album from 1993 is going to be Midnight Marauders by Tribe Called Quest. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but you like other stuff that's so much like this. Is it the fact that you think it's derivative? No, I mean like, I mean, the other things I like, like I mean like, two comparisons would be like REM right but but it's not like reckoning era REM which is like an era part of the crew that like I really enjoy um and it's not like and clearly they're inspired by Van Morrison but but it's not Astral Weeks Van Morrison mm-hmm. you know we're not uh, going down this road again. I know. I, I was. I don't want. I don't want to open that Pandora's box. As as someone Mackay who has known you a long time, 
who has a pretty good sense of your taste in music. There's something that Michael referenced that I, I think actually plays a bigger deal in it for you in, in terms of why you don't like it. And I, I think in some, I think to a certain extent, it's also the thing you don't like about you too, which oh, is, we're going to get into like the, like, okay. Yeah. Go it's, on, go on. It, I, I think that you don't like the earnestness of it. Like, cause, cause it is, and, and mm-hmm. it, it is, <laughs> Adam means it, you know, like it is, it is vulnerable. It is earnest. It is, it is not trying to be cool. Like it, it is, it seems to be comfortable with its lack of coolness. Like it, it, it and, and I don't know if there's a better way to say that, but when you think about this album, being recorded in June of 1993 and released in September of 1993. This was the time in which like, yeah, you, so you did have like that first gin blossoms record. You did have, um, you know, two toad, the wet sprocket albums that had come out before that. Like you, you do have a little bit of that kind of like the jangly coffee house rock thing that will, that will kind of assign to the early nineties, but it's so in opposition to the rock music that was popular during the time. It's, it's not, it's not alternative. It's not grunge. It's not music that seems to be the kind of ethos of that gen X. Like, all right, I just don't care. Like it doesn't have the problem that the Canon Chris have. And the problem that Adam Duritz has is not the, I don't care the cool detached. It is, he cares so much. Mm-hmm. It's so earnest. Like it. And so if, if there is, if there is a critique there, like I, I do think for a lot of people like that, it's so earnest that it can almost feel put on. Like be, it, it cares so much. It is so earnest. It is so vulnerable that it's, that it can be hard to take that seriously over the course of an album. Like, and so, and so that I understand, but I think for me, like this, this is an album that you talked about the nostalgia that's connected to it in my personal love for it. Like, I can't detach it from my own nostalgia to it. Like this is an album that came out when I was in middle school and very much, def- you know, it, it like here, here was the first album that did for me in my head and in my heart, like what, you know, it, great albums though they are, what none of the grunge albums did for me. Like this mm-hmm. did something for me that Nevermind didn't do or super unknown yeah, didn't do or 10 didn't do like this. This was, it was, it was this new flavor that was so different from everything else that was popular and was cool at the time. And it was, it was an, an earnestness and a sincerity that I connected with in, and maybe it's the lack of coolness that I had at the time and still have that like connects me to being like, no, I, 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 I'm okay with how much he cares here. Even, even if that's uncomfortable. And I, and I think that that plays a role in it because as you and I have shared over the years about music, we like, like, there is a outside of your deep love for Bob Dylan, like there's not a lot of love for music that is that earnest. And while I love Bob Dylan, like the, the album that we both love so much about Bob Dylan is blood on the tracks because it is his most earnest. It is his like most personal, everything else from Bob Dylan is just a really fascinating and great storyteller. But I feel like you have a very loose sense of who Bob Dylan is in any of that. Adam Duritz, I feel like you know exactly who he is by the time you get to the end of this album. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, and I thought about that too, but we just recorded an episode on on Emo. Yeah. And 
I mean, that was that was my whole thing when I was 13, right? So when you were experiencing Counting Crows, I was experiencing Dashboard, brand new Taking Back Sunday, which is very much just like, here's everything I'm thinking and feeling, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which when you're 13, I mean, that's just like the perfect time to, to get into that. Um, so I thought when you said like, oh, it's what you don't like about U2, I thought you were going to go into like, pop era u2 when they're doing like the irony thing and like bono's coming out as like uh mestizo or mestivo was it what was he doing hmm. that his like little devil character and they were just like trying to do like the irony thing uh that's what i thought you were in like rem2 being like ha isn't this like so silly shiny happy people isn't what we're doing like I don't know. There, there's some ironic things that happen in the nineties. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Is that, is that, is that like funny? It's like a really hit song. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but maybe yeah, if there's, for me, if there's an REM comparison, if there's an REM comparison in terms of like the ethos of this album or the ethos of Counting Crows, it would be Night Swimming. Like it, it is, it is that sweet. It is that sincere. Like it is. It is so set in a place and a time. Yeah. And like, like, like that's that when I, when I think about like, okay, what's, what's the picture of REM that I would most connect to Counting Crows night swimming would be it. Cause it's, it, that's where it feels like most of Adam Durrett's songwriting is coming from. Yeah. I agree with, with that. One thing that popped Mm -hmm. to mind while um, Micaiah is pondering that when you were talking Robin, like I'm older than you guys. So I was 19 when this record came out. So I don't, it wasn't like my early teen uh, enrapturement, but I do recall like once I paid attention to it, because I was initially alienated by Mr. Jones, um, primarily because the video is lame as hell. Um, but then once I listened to it, I, and then I got into the album, it was the first, and I'm not saying that this is like other bands are doing this. Dylan was doing this. Johnny Mitchell was doing this. A lot of Neil Young was doing this, but in um, other heroes, but it was the first band I felt like that was roughly the same age as me where I could greet it and receive it as something very much in approximation to actual literature. I think that the level of writing is that solid and that sound. And I do not think that there is a rival anytime around then coming up. I mean, and if you think about, and I can understand how like Dirt's voice might, like people hate Neil Young's voice sometimes too, right? I mean, people just don't like every voice. I can understand why someone might think he's a little too nasally or whatever, but I think the the performance on August and everything after was so self-assured along with its vulnerability, right? And then so beautifully written. Although I can also see how some people are kind of put off by the fact that these are, and oftentimes unfolding tales, right? That are not uh, direct payoffs, right? They're, they're not narrative like Springsteen, but they're not punchy like other songs or they're not a lapidary. I just like, and I feel like, so there was a period I didn't speak, I didn't listen to them at all. Like I stopped listening. Um, after this desert life, which didn't really fire me up that much. I just, they just kind of went away from my brain. And I only got back into them maybe within the last five or six years. There's a song called Palisades Park on an album called somewhere under wonderland maybe mm-hmm. and uh that song is spectacular and then yeah. i was so in love with that song that i listened to that record and i went back to them and i just the re- appreciation has um fully reignited somebody screaming all of jim jeffrey's dreams exploding into a black fist 
He falls to the floor. He stares up at the sky. And he may wish he knew why, but you can't go back there no more. You just sound so crazy. We all heard that song before. Tomorrow's the name to change from yesterday to blame when the train just don't stop here anymore. I got starry eye on the coaster ride And this is man, I need a break from the world outside and These days my life just dreams Through a pinball machine I could do so much better But I can't get off the tilt And there's a photograph on the TV Black and white and Andy says something to you Jack Johnson straddling Reno, Nevada Like she says I forget myself sometimes too out past the doorway where we are sleeping. Well, the white queen's creeping, the time cat's peeping. Now I'm not living, the train's just shaking. Yeah, you, you talked about the 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 literary strength of Adam Duritz's lyric writing, and and I could not agree more. I, and that that was that was an attraction for me early on. You know, talking about you know talking about things that are great about the album. Um, I I I you know again I, I think there is an extent to which you can look at this and go, this is a great. I feel like it's a well-produced record, but it does feel like the Adam Durrett solo record with a bunch of studio musicians um, who are very capable. Um, but but clearly there's a whole lot of direction going on from T-Bone Burnett. <laughs> the, the couple of songs that feel very stripped down, and maybe my favorite example of this is Raining in Baltimore. Because Raining in Baltimore is this song that's really with... With the exception of an accordion that comes in during the uh, during the bridge, it's really just him on on the piano, and it's really this beautifully well written song. And talking talking about kind of that Bruce Springsteen thing you're looking for, where you're like you're getting kind of a narrative kind of played out over the course. Uh, I feel like raining in Baltimore. You really do. You get this sense that that end of hey, there's things I remember, things I forget. Mm-hmm miss you, I guess that I should, but 3,500 miles away. And what would you change if you could like this, all of this kind of like, here's all the things I need. Here's my longing. And then kind of this conclusion of like, but there's also no getting back. Like this Mm -hmm. distance, this distance that ultimately separate us isn't going away. So we can, we can miss each other, but we're also, we don't, we're not invested enough to change anything about it. Right. right. And, and landing in that place of like this song about this kind of lovesick person who is missing this person. And at the same time, neither one of 
the individuals in the song are willing to give up any, you know, to, to give up whatever's keeping them separated to be with each other. There's, there's something like, I, I love that fully fleshed out kind of, here's the story that you get in the song lyrically. It's so beautifully written. It is such a stripped down, uh, you know, version of the song. And, and then, you know, to the point you were saying about like seeing, you know, of course, so, so David who plays essentially as a studio musician, not as part of the band in on this recording who later joins the band officially mm-hmm. in 1999, who, you know, brings, you know, I, I think the, the addition of an extra guitar, you know, who, you know, and really, I think technically he's the most gifted guitar oh, player. He's, in the band. he's a savage player. Yeah. And, and so, but you also see that, but then you also get Charlie Gilliam, um, Gilliam's, uh, his, his piano playing, his organ playing, his accordion playing, like all of these things that you get, like he seems to be the master of kind of everything that has keys on it. And you get to hear the ways in which he kind of just shows off underneath adam duritz on that one song and that's mm-hmm. it like it's really it's adam and charlie are that whole song mm-hmm. and there's something when when you see that so well done there's something about it that i that i immediately am drawn to and so even though like that's a raining in baltimore is never going to be a, a you know a single from that album and i think for you know even when you look at the town hall performance where they perform this album raining in baltimore is the only song they don't perform as it exists on the album right they stick raining in baltimore into the bridge of round here but yet here's this like neat little picture of here's adam duritz this is what he's capable of this is him as, as his most earnest I, I, and I just, whatever it, whatever it is, is that, and that's when you get into like, it's hard to find critical language for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever it is in that space, I, I'm, I'm here for, and I'm, I want more of it. I need a phone call. I need a plane ride. I need a sunburn.
To what extent does August and Everything After feel like a timeless album? And to what extent does it feel like an album very much stuck in the early 90s? So, so another way of asking might be this. Is this is this a great album or just a great early 90s album? I think it's a great album. And I think it, it is, I think it feels like a timeless album to me. You know, I think it's a, one of the rare perfect albums where everything hits on it. Every song hits on it. And, um, and whenever I would skip songs on it, it was, it would just because I didn't have the emotional fortitude to deal with it at the time. <laughs> but um, that's not a frailty on the part of the album. So I think that it, um, you know, as much as anything stands up, I think it stands up. And I think that is, um, it transcends nineties, mm-hmm. um, significantly, significantly. So, um, but I know that that's not going to be a unanimous opinion. Yeah. I'll <laughs> say listening to the album is much easier to separate from the nineties than this to go back, like watch the music videos. I think the, that feels that feels both entirely true, but maybe even off the topic. <laughs> yeah, because looking at yeah, but because I'll watch like some music videos from the eighties or something, and just be like, I think this is still great. Like, I think this this still works. Um, I don't know. There's for me like is it's just so nineties, and I don't really know why. Um, but it just is like why, like. Why, uh, why when I listen to Rid of Me by PJ Harvey, um, am I uh, why do I not think of that's like uh, this is just so 90s? But I listen to Counting Crows, I'm just like, yep, that's the 90s, all right. Um, I don't know, but because I can listen to like Kate Bush Hounds of Love and never am I thinking like this is so 1985. I'm just thinking, no, man, this is 2021, like this is just a perfect album, like this is just this is as good as it gets, you know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, but I, I can do that with, you know, when we're talking about Chuck Berry, it's like that, that stuff seems fresh to me. It doesn't seem like it's 1955. I mean, when I think of 90s stuff, I think of like a certain sort of chorus on the guitar, right? A certain sort okay. of like studio produced shimmer, right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking right now a lot of like the guitar tones on the Jim Blossoms, not the Jim Blossoms, well, the Jim Blossoms record, but also the, um, the spin doctors um, mm-hmm. and a lot of those guys with their very shimmery bell, like Stratocaster tones. And that typifies like and this really type tight of snare drums, really yeah, tight the, snare the drums, compression on this game reverb, a lot of yeah. compression. Yeah. These things are all absent yeah. from this record. I think well, that's the, all thanks to T-Bone probably. A lot it is part. totally all thanks to T-Bone, but they didn't go to that stuff in the next record either, which was 96, right? They yeah. didn't, they turned up the gain on the amps. I mean, if I'm looking for like an oral analog to this record, I think of the band's second record when I think of how it sounds. Like, I think it sounds as much like that from 1969 as it sounds like anything from the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, it's not what I think of when I think of 90s music. Mm. And I think of, um, Mm. I mean, I don't even know if this is the 90s. I think of Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth the 90s? Yeah, it's like late late 90s. 90s. Like Walking on the Sun is like 96. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of thing I think of is, and I think of like uh, crash test dummies, right? That's mm. like, that's what I think of when I think of the bad nineties. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't see that. Like, I don't see that black hat being fitted for, for counting crows. Um, I think that that's just like the chronological luck. That's the hand they were dealt. over 
even the instrumentation and, you know, the more stripped down, more acoustic aspect of this album feels, feels far more a decision of T-Bone Burnett's than it feels like here's Counting Crows, this coffeehouse nineties band. Mm -hmm. Cause, cause all the things that we're associating to that sound are T-Bone Burnett's decisions, not the band's. T-Bone does, does that though. Cause even thinking about like um, King of America, by Elvis Costello. It's like, wow, this is the most 80s Elvis Costello album, even though it's his like peeled back country album. It still sounds the most 80s and it's the one produced by T-Bone. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you made that point. But I don't know, like when I when I think of other great 90s albums, like Elliot Smith's Either Or, I don't think is being from 97. I don't think of, okay, Computer being from 97 like, or, or, or the 90s being there by Wilco, even though it is part of like the alt country thing. Where you can say, if you want to say Counting Crows is so, you know, the coffee house thing. And even though Wilco is very clearly so alt rock or alt country of the 90s, I still don't think of being there or Summer Teeth as like such 90s albums, even though Summer Teeth is like 99 anyway. But there's still, for Counting Crows, for me, it's still just like very, uh, or at least August and everything after, very connected to uh, just like that 90s sound that. That's very broad. I mean, '90s sound. I mean, that's everything from New Jack Swing to Counting Crows. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many things that are could pin you down to the '90s. So it's an. It, but is it a great '90s album or just a '90s album? Well, here's the thing. I I fully expected to listen to this album and just like really hate it. Like really, just be <laughs> like, God, like why did I agree to do this? Like all like before I even put like press play as like. Ari's scheme, like, how do I get back at Rob and pick an album? I know he's not going to choose the I love. Uh, but then, like, round here starts, and you're like, hmm, it's quite nice. And that 20 seconds happens, you're like, ooh, you almost had me. But then you reminded me that you're this, you're this 90s album. You almost, and then Omaha starts, and you're like, hmm, you're like, yeah. Omaha's an incredible song. Get your money back at the door, and all of a sudden, like, that's kind of stuck in your head for the afternoon. You're like, mm-hmm. okay. And then Mr. Jones comes on. You're like, then you get that nice little nostalgia wave. And you're like, okay. And then, but then, yeah. And then you get to like the second half of um, Anna. What's the name of that one? Anna Begins. Anna Begins. And that one I think is really sweet and really pleasant. And that's one where there's, I think there's an organ sound. Is it an organ? Where they, they really let the chorus go. Drummer goes on the ride. The organ fills in most of the space. And then they just kind of like, like dirts, just go for it. Seems like I should say, as long as this is love, but it's not all that easy. So maybe I should step her up in a butterfly net, pin her down on a photograph album. I'm not worried, because I've done this sort of thing before. But then I start to think about.
does the second half of that when it like re- when they really open it up because it is kind of like that 90s rock kind of thing and then they and then they let it breathe more and dirt just goes on and even even if it's even if the lyrics are like kind of still things like she was like she bangs a gong it's moving me along whatever it's just like cheap rhyme but like buddy it makes me feel really good to hear it like it's so you know maybe maybe it's just trying to conjure up t-rex bang a gong get it on but like in a really sweet way instead of a real glam way i don't know um but it's just like really really pleasant and and very nice you're like yeah I, i i see the appeal of this if i'm someone in the 90s and like grunge is not doing it for me like if if i if everyone's like yo jeremy like that's that's my shit and i listen to jeremy i'm like that's like way too intense for me dude and then i get anna begins like i found my spot like you know like i i I can see that um it's still not like a top five album of 1993 for me um but but i get it i i get its appeal um saying saying that it's so 90s isn't a put down either i mean like park life by park, park park life by blur is so 90s and that you know that's a that's a that's a plenty good album dre's the chronic is so 90s but i mean that's a seminal hip-hop record you know what i mean so it's not the worst thing to be so 90s you know i mean we all are of our time obviously mm. but i think that there's just something about that album where it's not at all a performance of conviction, right? It's a demonstration of conviction that makes me feel like it is a timeless record that mm. will, will be sticking around, right? Even if they never play Mr. Jones on, you know, Sirius XM again. Let's let's do this. Let's let's share our you know our five favorite songs on the album, and and obviously sure. there, there's there's going to be a lot of um, uh, crossover. I imagine we're going to have a lot of similar lists. Yeah, it's eleven um, songs, so I mean, like yeah. I feel like we're we're bound to. So so then so then let me let me ask this. Let's do it this way. It, let's let's share kind of your five favorite songs on the album and what you what you like about them, and. If you had to make this a ten-track album, what's the one you'd get rid of? Oh, so let's okay. let's let let's let those those be the questions, and I'm I'm happy to start because I'm I'm ready to go with this. Um, so favorite favorite song on the album is Rain King, uh, followed by Round Here, Anna Begins, A Murder of One, and Raining in Baltimore. 
that would be that would be my my five on the album sure um and you know i've I've talked a lot about raining in baltimore and what i love about that um i i and again like i love both rain king and murder of one as like the big rock pop hits for this album that like those those are the ones that you when you hear them you're you you know in my ears they're just like this is such a this is such a radio friendly hit why was this not the big hit you know, it's, 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 it's the way I feel now when I listen to please to meet me by the replacements and I'm blown away that can't hardly wait was not a mega hit for them. And they like, you listen to that song and you're like, how was this not a top 10 billboard billboard hit? Like this is such a great yeah. song. Cause it might be um, the best song of all time. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, it has a, it right. Has a, yeah. Right. Cause that's, a, that's what like we were talking about with Bob Mayer's like, it's still a hit. Yeah. Like it was on the billboard charts, but it's a mega hit. Like, yeah, it's, and so that, that's how I feel both about Rain King and Murder of One. Um, I, I, again, I think, and, and there's an extent to which, Mikai, we, we haven't talked about this, but what Michael and I both have in common is that this is a band we have seen in concert multiple times. Right. And, and they are a phenomenal live act. Like, it, it may be worth, you can watch it on YouTube for free. Um, you can watch the, um, live August and everything after live, live at Town Hall. And, and I think seeing, seeing this band perform live and seeing just um, what a tremendous live act they are, I think also changes some of the ways that you, that you hear some of this music um, of the four times I've seen Ken and Crows in concert across 17 years. Um, every single time I've seen them, they have opened with round here. Um, and, and, it, and especially as you think about like a headlining act opening their set with a song that is that down. And I mean, even the way the album opens, like the, the, the album doesn't launch you into hit like the, it, it really unfolds in this beautiful way and watching them do that in concert and start concerts out that way is really incredible. And so I, I just love that about around here. And then Anna begins, I just think is such a, I, I'm with you. Like the, the way the second half of that song unfolds and they also do something for the first time on this album and it's something that they're great at now. When you see them live now and when you hear them in later albums, you you hear this as well. But, you know, Michael, you had talked about how this sounds like the second band album. And, and I'm with you on that with one exception. The band sang in harmony well, so well together. Like you have these kind of three primary vocalists that 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 That's- share those vocal duty, duties so well. And the thing that I love about Anna Begins, whether it's the doubling of Adam Duritz's vocals or whether it's the background vocals or um, uh, Megan McKee, I think is her name, who sings background vocals as well on the album. Like the, you you hear you hear the power of. Adam Duritz's vocal surrounded by the background mm-hmm. vocals of this band on Anna begins when you get into the, the, mm-hmm. the second part towards the ending of the song. And so I, I think it's just a beautifully crafted song. And the only, the only song on here. And again, I, I don't think there's a bad track on this whole album. I, it still blows my mind that Mr. Jones was the big hit, but I don't think it's a bad song um, overplayed certainly, but not a bad song. Um, Time and Time Again is the only song, and maybe this is part of its brilliance, Time and Time Again is the only song on the album that feels repetitive to me. Like, it, 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 it feels like there's, there's not any dynamics that ever build to it. So that the chorus, the time and time again, like, it just, it feels like you get stuck in this loop of that song. And so that would be the only one I would cut if I had to cut one. All right. Uh, one, well, 
okay, if I if I'm gonna say something good about this album, which I haven't really said anything bad, but I haven't feel like I said anything good about the strength of it as an album. It's it's paced pretty well in that like almost every other song is like a real big hit. Uh for terms of the album itself, like round here, great opening track. Then Mr. Jones at number three, great place for it. You know what I mean? It um it and then like number five, Anna begins, then seven is Rain King, you know, and then nine is Ghost Train, whatever, and then ending with Murder of One is like great big finish. You know what I mean? So like it I think it's you know you can see like okay that that's a pretty good way to you know if you if you dip out on one of them the next one you know is probably going to bring you back um so i think it's pretty cleverly designed in that way uh but for me my five uh just on how they appear on the record round here great opening omaha uh been stuck in my head uh Mr. Jones, because it is that nostalgia thing. It's the only thing that really ties me to this record um, since I was young. So, and it, and it does remind me of being in the backseat of cars or being the passenger seat, seeing everything from like a certain eye level. Uh, you know, the beach communities that I drove around in, you know, when my mom was driving when I was younger. And it begins, which I'm been on the record for talking about already. And uh, Murder of One. I mean, of course, you know, even though I think it's, pretty audacious for a band called counting crows to also have a song called murder of one. Uh, maybe that's a little silly, but, uh, but the song, you know, song works. So good on them. And, and, and Rob, I'm with you. If I'm going to cut one, uh, I would also say time and time again, cause it's one, first of all, five minutes, 13 seconds, second, like second longest on the album. And it's one that it, it does kind of snap me back. If I'm like tuning out, but it snaps me back in like a, wow, this course is happening again, huh? You know, so it, it really has a kind of a negative effect um, in bringing me back into to tuning back into what I've been listening to in the background, you know? So that that's that's my take. Hopefully that appeases you or pleases you, <laughs> um, Counting Crows fans. So, so I, I, I do think it's important to know that, so murder of one was written before the band officially had counting crows as a name so that the, the name of the band comes from the song. Um, but, but I'm with you. Like I, I, there's, there's, there's a risk there and I I understand what you're talking about lyrically, but it's such a damn great song, but I think they they pull it off. They get away with it, Um, but it's, and and I promise you when you see them do it in concert, as she stood there counting crows, you will the the audience will never scream any two words as loudly as they will scream along counting crows in that song uh, that doesn't sound appealing to me but <laughs> but if you're a counting crows fan who's just ready to shout the name of the band you're seeing <laughs> go for it all right i mean well first off i agree with you guys that the if there is a dog it's time and time again um it's almost cruelly named to rub in your face that it just unspools far too slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I would feel somewhat differently about it if it didn't have sort of cosmetic resemblances to a couple other songs. Um, Perfect Blue Buildings, Ghost Train. Um, as an aside, the first time I saw them, they opened with Ghost Train, which I thought was balls out. Like, <laughs> you come out and you open with that song, like that is yeah. people who feel like they're going to be able to hold an audience, you know? Um, as far as my favorite songs, I think, and this is probably my order uh, around here. Um, 
you know, even Dirtz is on the record saying like, that's pretty much the song that tells you what Counting Crows is about. I think that um, it's just superlatively evocative of what it means to be enduring transformation while you're still trying to figure out what you were the minute before, right? It's just an incredible, incredible song. I think it sounds great. I think that they take their time on it. I think that it's shockingly beautifully written. Um, My number two is Omaha. My favorite thing about Omaha, it's the final verse. And uh, he's like, hey, mister, if you're going to walk on water, you know, you're going to, you're only going to walk all over me. And the rhythm with which he delivers, you know, you're only going to walk all over me is incredible. And the sort of internal uh, consonants and the way that things sort of roll in there, I think is emblematic of a lot of the really great subtleties of Duritz's writing a melody. Um, but I think that song is just incredible. It sounds great. It's a sing-along song, strangely enough. Um, after that, I'm a big fan of Murder of One, both the studio version and then this live concert that Rob has mentioned a couple of times. It's worth watching not least to see how three guitars share a stage on what's effectively like an amped up, coked up folk song. And sonically, they just layer together so perfectly. I mean, it's just really, it's beautiful. They don't get in each other's way. Either, each other's way. The tones are great. Um, Duritz goes off the reservation as he always does. Uh, in, in a way, it's similar to Dylan. His performance, his melodies are never the same when he mm. performs, right? Um, so people aren't really going to be screaming along except when he says counting crows, <laughs> which sometimes gets cut. Like they'll cut that and insert other parts of songs. That performance on that live show is really incredible. And they do this song called, oh, what is it? It's a sorted humor song. I forget the name of it. Doris Day is mm-hmm. embedded in like the second third of, um, of A Murder of One. I think that song just balls out. Great rock and roll song. Brain King is the fourth for a couple of reasons. One, it's just great. Two, I think it's incredible when anyone takes a Saul Bellow novel and gets inspired to write a song about it or from it, not about it. Um, in the live performance of that, they embed the entirety of Thunder Road in the middle of Rain King between the second and third verse. And it works so well, so fucking good. Um, but I just, I've always loved that song. Number five was difficult for me. And I'm going to come down on Sullivan Street, but that's me probably being swayed a little bit by live performances of it I've seen. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be Anna Begins and I've tried to listen to it a lot lately. And Anna Begins used to be my favorite song on the record. And it, it, and you're right, about halfway through, it starts to swing. The ride comes in mm-hmm. and it, it does, it swings. It's great. And he was really feeling it. And there's some great live performances on YouTube from the nineties. If you want to watch them, but I no longer find myself baffled about love that way. Right. So that song just feels like a wound that I've already healed. Right. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't like it doesn't hit just right anymore, which is an apology to Anna Begins, because I think it would normally be my top five. But as of today, I think Sullivan Street's up there. I think that probably rounds out my top five. If that, if that satisfies you all.
There's something you referenced there, and I, I do think it's part of the way you talked about being 19 when you first encountered this album. Mm. And this is also an album that the album, you know, stays in this form, you know, like it, it's, it stays in, you know, it's, it's, it's pressed onto a vinyl or, you know, lasered onto a CD or put on tape, like, but it's it's there. It's frozen in time in terms of the 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 feet itself, and yet, as someone who is a consumer of it, you evolve over the years as you're listening to it. So, even if you even if it's a timeless album, your relationship to it changes with with your life. And so you referenced in Anna Begins, like you that's a wound that you've healed. You no longer feel that way about love. Are there other albums that that's happened for you with or, or other maybe not albums, but maybe other songs where the thing that you love, the thing that once most drew you to that song, because you're not that same person anymore. Like Michael Washburn's a completely different person than he was then. Mm-hmm. So the song is different for you now. Is 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 maybe that some of as a 30-year-old coming to this album for the first time, is that some of what Makai is missing out on? Is that some of some of the parts of this album that so deeply connect to you, to the person you were back then, Makai has outgrown most of that already by the time he's taking this full album in on his own. So basically you're asking, is this, is this a young man's album? Yeah. Or, or, or is, is it less about the album is stuck in the nineties so much as it was so much as it is that the album is stuck in the, the heart and mind of a young man whose life is not as um, <laughs> as tethered as as yours is now, you know that there is there is a groundedness to your album to, to your life right now, Thank um, you. and to your relationships and to your like in, into your future. Like there's just more figured out for you where you're at now. I, I wonder if this is an album for you that it's not that it's not that the album is stuck in a time and place, but that you're not in the place now you're, you're no longer the Micaiah who would really have loved this album. And maybe that might be the better way of asking that question. Like you might, you may no longer be the Micaiah who really could have connected with this album on the, in the way that both Michael Washburn and I did. I mean, I, I mean that's, that's kind of impossible to answer, but at the same time, when we were preparing for 
the emo episode, I was going back and listening to first and second wave emo albums that I was listening to start to finish for the first time and being like, wow, this whole thing works. Like I, I never listened to like framing canvas by braid. Mm-hmm. And, but I was like, Hey, this works. Yeah. I like this. And I've gone back and listened to it uh, since we've recorded the, the episode. Yeah. You know, so, um, and I think that that's all very much a emo is very much a young person's game. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I I realize that my that's that's probably an impossible question to ask. I, I guess, I guess, Michael, Michael, that's what I, I'm kind of wanting to hear from you is like, be, because you referenced that in terms yeah. of your relationship to Anna Begins, like, are there are there other ways that that's true for you on this album, or maybe on other albums that you love? I don't think there are other ways on this album that have made that turn. I think that like my aesthetic sensibilities still jive pretty directly onto the Adam Duritz of August and everything afters sensibilities um, for the most part. Um, I mean, I've had this sort of estrangement from things I've loved more recently with books than with albums, to be honest. Really? But yeah. I've recently gone back to reread books. I've been saying that the same five books are my f- same five books for 15 years and I hadn't read them in 15 years except for Moby Dick. Um, so I've gone back through them and I've, I shouldn't have gone back to a couple of them because they, you know, they've been taken down a notch. What were they? I think, uh, the book of laughter and forgetting Thomas Mann's the magic mountain, um, Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner. Oh, Moby really? Dick, and, um, one hundred years of solitude. Hmm. Those are the, the novels. I always said are my favorite. Um, so, and I, I, I never updated the list, right? Marilyn Robinson should be there. Um, George Saunders should be there, but I went back to revisit these books and uh, the magic mountain is a young man's book, right? I read Mm -hmm. that at the right time in my life and a hundred years of solitude should be a hundred pages shorter. I mean, who am I to say this? Edit that. (laughs) Never mind. Um, (laughs) So one thing that I, that I, I, I know it's happened, but one of the things that prompted me to, to think of when you're asking the question, Posing it again is my relationship, how I think about Born to Run, mm. right? Which is a what I think of as one of like an album that really is like on my team. Mm-hmm. There's something I've been fighting about Born to Run for five or so years now, where Born to Run in my mind and what I want it to be is a call to action, right? It is a let's hit the road, let's get out there and let's do it. And at a certain point, there's going to be an age where I click over another mile on the odometer and then it becomes a soundtrack for nostalgia. If I'm lucky Mm. or Mm. like a rocking lament for what didn't happen. Right. And so that the anthemic is where that is probably the sharpest line you have to walk and cunning crows are not anthemic really. (laughs) So I know that that doesn't directly answer your question, but I think it's in the same field. It's the same concerns. Um, I know as soon as we end this call that I'll think of a perfect example that actually speaks directly to your question, but uh, that's, that's what that was prompted to think when you were talking. It's, I'm uh, glad, that makes yeah. sense. No, no, no it, it really does. And I'm, yeah. and I'm glad that you mentioned born to run because it, uh, cause we're doing it next season and we're already thinking of guests. Well, we'll know that, well that too, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm I think born to run because 
and and I think I think you know also I think kids I think this happens with children, you know that like a long time ago I stopped being, you know like uh, <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say a long time ago I stopped being like an interesting adult on my own like a long time ago I just became dad to someone else, like so like all of the fascinating interests that I have like all the things that are passions of mine and are meaning are meaningful to me like are just the source of eye rolling from an eleven year old daughter like. Like it, like it's, it's just, it, it's what is born into it. And so I also recognize that like the nature of having children also means that I am doing the thing that my mom did to me, to my children. So my mom who had this music from the sixties and seventies, it was such a, like a huge part of her identity and who she was and was so meaningful to her and like bands that she had gone to see in concert and stuff that like, and, you know, and she would play those records, you know, endlessly in the household that I grew up in, which then became, you know, so much a, a huge part of my own influences. I realize now that like, I'm, I'm literally doing the same thing for my children. And so you realize like, once you start doing that, like, oh, I, I, I am, I, I am, I am a moment away from being stuck in that kind of nostalgia over whatever is happening right now mm-hmm. being, you know, like kind of being the main, the main focus mm-hmm. and born to run is one of those albums where like it, like it, it feels it's, it's, it's an earnest album. Like it's earnest. It is immediate. Like there's a sense of immediacy to born to run. It's right now. Like time is running out and you know, it's what, seven eight years and then you get glory days on on born in the usa like in in at a certain point like i'm if i'm not there already i am in the chasm between born to run and glory days you're in the darkness on the edge of town yeah yeah oh man that's a great yeah that's like an exorcism Oh yeah, man. Um, speaking of springsteen, I read an interview years and years and years ago. I don't know why I would have read this. Um, but Duritz was talking, Adam Duritz was talking about, uh, this like road trip he went on and he traveled all around the country, leaving the Bay area where he lived at the time. And that he was in like, they, he was sort of miserable and he swore that he was never going to do a road trip again, unless he did it with a band and counting crows were on the first tour. And as they were pulling over the Golden Gate Bridge, I mean, I could be butchering this. Memory's unreliable. But as they were pulling across the Golden Gate Bridge, the album he put in to like inaugurate their first tour was Born to Run. Which, you know, I think that's something I would do. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Between she's 
scared that I might not make it home. I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. But I'm sinking in. Hey, well, if anyone's home with your place, darling, please invite me in, but don't try to lead me. Cause look, I've been there before, and I deserve a little more. Across the porch while the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely. Hey, that's me, and I want you. Only don't turn me home again. I just can't face myself alone again. Don't run back inside, darling. You know just what I'm here for. So you're scared, you're thinking, maybe we ain't that young anymore. Well, show up. You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right, and that's all right with me. You can hide beneath your covers and study your pain, make crosses from your lovers, throw roses in the rain, waste your summer praying in vain for some savior to rise from these streets. Well, now I ain't no hero, that's understood. All the redemption I can offer, girl, is beneath this dirty hood With a chance to make it good somehow But what else can we do now? Exit roll down my windows and let the wind blow back your hair And this night's busting open, these two lanes will take us anywhere Hey, we got one last chance to make it real To trade in these wings on some wheels So climb in back, baby Heaven's waiting down the tracks Oh, come take my hand We're riding out tonight to case the promised land Oh, under the road It's lying out there like a killer in the sun I know it's late We could, we could make it if we run Out to Thunder Road Look at Dan See, Dan got this guitar and he learned how to make it talk. My car's out back. If you're ready to take that long, 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 long walk from your front porch to my front seat, the door is open, but the ride ain't free. 
So tonight you'll be lonely for words that I ain't spoken Tonight you'll be free, all the promises broken There were ghosts in the eyes of all the boys that you sent away They haunt this dusty beach road in the skeleton frames of burnt-out Chevrolets And they scream your name at night in the streets Your graduation gown lies in rags at your feet And in the land of cool You know, Rob, when we... When we did Nirvana, you know, I, you know, when people go back and listen to that episode, I kind of had problems getting into Nirvana as well because I wasn't growing up in the early 90s. I was still literally a baby, you know, and so then being told, you know, as a young teen that that album was the most important in my lifetime, you know, that, you know, put up a barrier between me and the album and yet preparing for it for the podcast, it really clicked with me this time. So much so that I actually went out and bought the record. I'm not going to go out and buy this Counting Crows record. I know what and, I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> uh, oh, what a cruel joke. Uh, no, it, uh, whatever. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to buy it. Um, and I'm probably just, I'm probably not going to listen to it again. Um, I just, I, I don't have the song, you know, the songs have not stayed with me. Um, yeah, there's, there's just, there's just not a lot for me there. Uh, and that's fine. You know, um, but yeah, that, that's just kind of where I am with it. I just, I'm, this isn't in my top five from 1993. Uh, definitely not my top 25 50 or whatever of the 90s um i just don't see it as one of these all-time great timeless albums you know because even if you know like part of it was like oh well growing up in the 90s it was this way it was like well that's fine but there are a lot of albums from the 90s that you know from that early 90s that still hold up without having to be someone who was you know in that time you know, or if it's just like, oh, well, you know, this really appeals to people of a certain age. Well, then that, that doesn't make it a timeless record. And I, I would have a hard time saying that this is an all-time great record if there are so many kind of caveats to like, well, if you heard it at this time or if you were at this age when you got to it, that's too many hoops to jump through to get to calling an album an all-time great. So that's why I don't think I would ever consider this one of our 100 greatest albums of all time. And I get that. And, and, and the truth is, it's an album that is deeply meaningful to me. It is personal to me. Um, but this is, this is among a handful of albums for me that I, I love, I think are phenomenal. They mean a great deal to me. And yet I also recognize it would be very, very disingenuous to say, I think this is one of the hundred greatest albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I appreciate you suffering and uh, in, in letting Michael and I try to convince you of the greatness of this album. I appreciate your willingness to at least listen to it. Um, many I, times. I, many times. I so enjoyed 
the preparation for this podcast and in really kind of finding a new appreciation for a band that I've loved for a long time. Um, but I, I am not surprised that your mind was unchanged and I am okay with where we're at. Um, my, my hope is, is that we continue not just in between the seasons we're in right now, but as we're in between our second and third season and third and fourth season, my, my hope really will be that we continue to do these bonus episodes and for both of us to get a chance to talk about those albums that we love while also recognizing, yeah, that's probably not one of the hundred greatest albums of all time. Yeah. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And I'm excited for where we find something, another transatlanticism, like another one where you and I be like, no, this is a 100 greatest album, you know, and this isn't on any of the list, but here's why it's great. You know, I'm, I'm excited for more of those kind of opportunities to, to pop up when that happens to kind of get away from just Mm -hmm. recreating all the canonical lists, but with our barely unique spin on it. So I'm hope I'm hoping for more of those kind of moments in our in our list. I, I'll tell you, you know, even thinking about even thinking about the the '90s, you know, a period of time where I was a teenager and where um, that music is very personal and, and meaningful to me. There are still albums within the '90s that I I do think in the coming seasons of our show um, that we may find out that n- not only do you and I agree. But we may find ourselves going, no, this is this is one of those great albums. I'm I'm thinking particularly around um uh Fiona Apple's When the Pond Hits. Um uh really for, for me and you and I have talked about this. Uh there's there's three Elliott Smith albums that came mm-hmm. out in the nineties that I could consider uh, among uh, among the best of the nineties and and really it, at least one of those I think rightfully should make should make our list uh, in, in coming seasons. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited that this, this window, this kind of 10 year window of music, um, is going to be represented and acknowledged in our podcast, even if, um, what you, uh, effectively deem coffeehouse rock, uh, never makes its way in, into that list. Hey, I love automatic for the people that that's as close as we're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, listener, um, look, you've heard from Michael Washburn, you've heard from me and you've heard Micaiah's take. Uh, I need the fans of the counting crows to just, I mean, hop on our Instagram at you forgot one hop on our Twitter, um, at you forgot one pod. Let Micaiah know that he is wrong about this. I'm I'm willing to admit this may just be a personal preference, but listen, I don't know that it is. So let us know, <laughs> man. You just keep walking it back over here. <laughs> I know. Listen, I, if anyone is interested, if they haven't heard the album, you can go to any used <laughs> CD bin at any place where you, any Salvation Army, Goodwill, Half Price Bookstore, Record Store. Any place where you can find CDs for a dollar, you'll find a stack of this album. Go ahead and grab one, drive around in the car with the windows rolled down and just really go for mm-hmm. it. And and you can get a vinyl copy of it. I think I got mine for like 18 bucks. So 
you can you can get it on vinyl as well. Uh, the, all that being said, listener, thanks for being with us, and we will see you back for another bonus episode in two weeks. And Micaiah, do we even know what the next bonus episode is going to be? Let's do Desert Island so we don't have to book a guest. There we go. So in two weeks, join us back here for our next bonus episode as Makai and I talk about our Desert Island albums. We'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.